Hi, my name is Vicki. Welcome to BSF. We are going to continue our study of the divided kingdom tonight in 1 Kings 15 through chapters 18. But let's pray and we'll get started. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to preserve your word for us that we might understand who you are that we might understand that you are committed to your people and your purposes, that you will pursue us, that you will redeem us. Lord, would you help us as we think about these words that were written so long ago about people who lived uh, so long ago to see the relevance by your Spirit. May your word be living and active that we would be transformed, that we would, at the end of this time in studying your word, we would trust you more, we would love you more, and our lives would more resemble the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would be equipped to display him and be about your gospel purposes where you send us in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what was I thinking have you ever said that to yourself? I have uh, said that about myself many times uh, when I said something awful or uh, I overate or I, I was in a situation that I shouldn't have been in. Uh, what was I thinking? Uh, like, f- there are some times when our perspective gets skewed and the things that we should remember our priorities, the important people in our lives, the principles that we order our lives around. They get muddy and uh, we forget them. And rather, uh, we have upside down priorities or we put our trust in those who do not uh, warrant it, like uh, Frodo in the Two Towers when he trusted Gollum and turned his back on Sam, um, what was he thinking? Uh, we, When th- things are forgotten that should not be, it is tragic, and tragic actions and consequences ensue. And yet, when, by God's grace, we remember right things, who we are, who He is, uh, how we should be living and acting in His world uh, about His purposes, there is cause for rejoicing. And so, I wonder, uh, how have you seen that played out in your story? Do you have a tragedy of forgetfulness where you've been forgotten, or you yourself have forgotten important people and realities? Uh, do you have stories of remembrance, stories where you were on a bad trajectory, your priorities were upside down, and yet something happened, and things you saw things clearly. Where do you need God's help to be a rememberer, one who remembers and does not forget? If you are like me, I suspect, and I most people, I think this is a human problem. We're finite and We are changeable, we're dynamic, and even though we might know right things uh, and right values, sometimes those get blurry uh, in their played out in the world. And uh, tonight we see the tragedy of forgetfulness in Israel's northern kingdom, and also God's grace 
in remembrance. Um, Israel has not remembered the Lord, who He is and what He has done, how His loving kindness rescued Him from slavery in Egypt, how He provided for them powerfully, protected them fiercely, covenanted with them faithfully to be their God, and He would be, they would be His people, uh, a kingdom of priests reflecting His character to a watching world. And so, we've seen since 1 Kings 11, we've seen Israel's heart uh, starting with Solomon, but turning away from the Lord and turning toward worshiping other gods, trusting other uh, paradigms and priorities. And King's narrator depicts this dire picture of Israel's forgetfulness and ingratitude, but uh, the Lord does not give up, and His remembrance is uh, in he calls his people to remembrance. He reveals himself to them uh, yet again. He invades history because he is faithful. He proves his word true, and he keeps his covenants. So, I think as we study First Kings 15 to 18 tonight, God, I think that we can learn that God calls his people to remember what is truly important and that our lives would show that he alone is God. So, Tonight, we're going to actually be picking up uh, in chapter 15, verse 25, and then um, we're going to look at two divisions, um, 1525 to 1634, and see Israel's forgetfulness increases. And then our second division, chapter 17 and 18, we'll see how God calls his people to remembrance. Um, God demonstrates in that his power over God, Israel, false god Baal. So overall, through this tendency, this is pretty two pretty distinct divisions with distinct material. Um, pay attention to the repeated exit, the echoes of the Exodus story throughout our passage, and really most of Kings. Uh, away, these repeated echoes should, especially for God's covenant people as they read um, as they read these true stories would call them back to remember who God is and what he has done and the lengths to which he would go to rescue his people. So let's uh, dive on in, open your Bibles to chapter 15. We'll pick up in verse 25. Um, this material is in continuity with what we have read thus far in 1 Kings 11, high-level accounts of kings looking at their facts and their milestones and their reigns, um, but the rather than thinking about what they built or um, the legislation that they enacted, uh, the primary focus is on their heart posture before God. In fact, readers are referred to outside to other books. If you want to know more about, say, Nadab, um, for uh, verse uh, 15, uh, 31, um, we're referred to the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So, uh, these, these select, this select material is showing us heart posture predominantly, and we're moving very quickly through time, maybe um, four-ish to five decades. And uh, we had focused last week on two kings in the southern kingdom in Judah, um, in the south, and now this week, we're going to be focusing on six kings in the northern kingdom. And um, so, there's 
many themes, um, but let's pick up on three. Um, first, uh, the northern kingdom we can see with six, the rise and fall of six kings. Um, well, actually, you know, we end with Ahab, he's still king. But uh, we, we see many dynasties um, come down. There's fall of dynasty of Jeroboam, and then fall of Bash's dynasty. Um, Zimri is tragic, and then we have the house of Omri. And so, we don't know exactly what's going to happen yet with that, but um, that's a lot of political upheaval and tumult. It must have been very difficult to be just an ordinary citizen in um, Israel. The lens is not on those ordinary citizens, though, however, um, is looking at the kings, the assassinations, the power grabbings, and the lens is moving so quickly, and so we feel the upheaval even more. Um, there is cruelty and war between Israelite brothers, and um, this is in contrast to what is going on in the southern kingdom. Most of this has happened um, in the in the reign of a good king Asa. So, if you look at 1525, Nadab, uh, the son of Jeroboam, starts to reign in the second year of Asa. Asa reigned for um, 41 years. And then um, uh, Ahab starts reigning in the 38th year of reigning of the king of Judah, if you look at 1629. So, there's stability in the south and good influence largely in the south, but um, in the north is hard. Um, second theme, I think we can see the northern kingdom's trajectory moves away from God at an accelerating pace of forgetfulness. So, each of these six kings are evaluated for their own behavior and influence. We see four kings, Nadab, Basha, Elah, and Z- Zomri, Zimri, sorry, um, the first four kings that we're looking at in the northern kingdom today are evaluated with almost the same words. Um, for example, uh, let's look at 1526 for Nadab. Um, he did what was evil in the sight of Judah and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So, those three components, he did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord. It's the Lord's perspective that matters. Um, he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, his father, which again, was the golden calves, um, and not wanting God's people to go and worship in Jerusalem. And then this influence, he made Israel sin. So, there was um, not only did the kings move away from the Lord and rebel against uh, the Lord, but Israel, their people, rebelled. Um, by their influence. And so, those four kings are really evaluated um, in similar terms, but the house of Omri, Omri and his son um, Ahab, set a new pattern that rather than just doing evil in the pattern of Jeroboam, they take it up a notch. And so, if you look at 1625, um, Omri did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, we've heard that. They and did more evil than all who was bef- who were before him. And he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So, there's a more, there's an increase, and Ahab takes that even one step further and makes it much more specific, introducing Baal worship. Um, So, uh, 1630, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it was, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, 
king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, we should hear echoes and warning echoes about what happened to Solomon. Um, Verse 32, Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so, um, things were now very serious. Um, They ramped up a notch. And so, uh, we see our third theme um, in this this division is that God is still at work throughout, pursuing and proving his word true. And so, as he did with Solomon, we saw that as he did with Jeroboam, um, God is sending warnings to many of these kings and warnings that are very dire and carry the implicit invitation to repent. But unlike uh, David, who's the model king who did repent when God confronted him, none apparently responded in that way, um, at least not in the chapters yet. And so, when God's warnings were ignored, God's word became true. And there's a repeated refrain, um, according to the word of the Lord. And so, um, Nadab reigned in Israel, but we can see in verse uh, chapter 15, 27, Basha conspired against him, and then um, he killed him and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the son, all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, Ahijah the Shilonite. And so, we hear that refrain going on throughout. And even um, when it seems, it does not, there's no indication in the text that Basha was uh, cooperative or even aware that the Lord had said that. Um, The Lord is in charge. And so, but now things are very serious. Given the Baal idolatry and the implied child sacrifice that um, is coming in 1634, we had ominous overtones of that in Solomon's day with um, Moloch and Chemosh worship. Um, but here, 1634, we see sons are actually, um, it seemed to be sacrificed. And so, this sets up the stage for God's major intervention, um, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, which will be the next big section that we're going to study in uh, the books of First and Second Kings. And so, a principle, though, before we move on to that section, let's look, let's look overall at this division, the rise and fall of all these kings. I think, what can we learn? Forgetting God has consequences. Forgetting God has consequences. Forgetting has consequences, right? Um, if you're in school and you forget an assignment, uh, there are typically consequences that come with that. Um, and forgetting God has its own unique consequences because God is not just an assignment. God's a person, a living uh, God person that um, who has made us in his image and intends to be um, the, intends his glory to be filled throughout the earth. Um, Deists believe that God created the world and like he, like he wound up a clock and he set the world in motion, all the natural laws and everything, and then stepped away and people are left to live. However, um, he might be out there somewhere, but he's not really involved. Um, this is the opposite of how King's narrator depicts God for us. Um, 
kings of Israel, whether they liked it or not, are, are, were bound to God in covenant by their ancestors, and they were required specifically as kings to remember God and keep his covenants. Look at Deuteronomy 17 specifically, and we've heard that refrain in 1 Kings 2, 1 Kings 9, 1 Kings 11, that kings were called to walk in the ways of the Lord and keep his commandments and be faithful all the days of their lives. Um, kings are meant to lead and shepherd God's people toward God. So when the kings forgot God, instead there were there were false trusts that were introduced and that influenced the people. Um, and while the kings probably did humanly impressive things recorded in books that have since crumbled to dust, um, what's left of their legacy is how they forgot God and rebelled against Him. Um, the consequences of forgetfulness tend to be greater than what we expect. And uh, But the good news is God intervenes. God is still present. God doesn't forget His people. He didn't forget those kings, and He doesn't forget His people, the ordinary people in Israel, who are living under that oppression. Um, the consequences uh, of God, uh, forgetting God are real, but God loves us too much to let us languish in false hopes and loves. And I wonder, are there words or ways of God that uh, you would like to put out of memory or treat lightly uh, as if he might forget his standards, as if he might forget his promises? Um, God has made promises and uh, his character is faithful. And if you've made commitments to the Lord, he remembers those. Um, how are you remembering them? Um, and how is he, what do you do when, um, how have there been consequences um, when, probably not if, but when um, you, as I have done, uh, being be forgetful of the Lord? Um, the call is, to this God who pursues and loves us to flee to Christ. God does not despise any who come to him seeking forgiveness in Christ. Jesus Christ has paid the full spiritual penalty for sin and forgetfulness um, for all of those who turn to him um, in repentance. And this may not remove the earthly consequences, but God promises to use everything for those who love him um, for their good and for his glory. So the bad news is forgetfulness does have consequences. The good news is God is quick to forgive those who repent and he wants us to remember. Um, as Christians, he has given us his spirit, his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to prompt us to memory. Um, God calls his people to remember who he is and live according to that. Okay, let's go on to our second division, chapters 17 to 18. Um, they have, now that we've gotten up to this cruising altitude kind of of um, intense wickedness and rebellion against God, um, God is going to step in and confirm that he alone is worthy of Israel's remembrance. And so, there's two parts of this. There's a, a private part um, in chapter 17 and a public part in chapter 18, both of uh, Elijah's ministry. Um, and both of these seem specifically designed to demonstrate God's power over the fa false god Baal. 
Um, verse 17, 1 sets the stage. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Teshba in Gilead said to Ahab, so that's the reigning king in the house of Omri, the one who did more wickedness, provoked the Lord, um, uh, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. <clears throat> and so, this sets the stage for Baal tar- God targeting Baal specifically and proving him false. And I suggest to you, there may be an echo here of the ten plagues of Egypt that the Lord um, gave during the Exodus time to uh, undercut um, Israel and um, Egypt's trust in um, false gods and their supposed power. And so, um, this this time of famine should, uh, should evoke memories of times that God did this before. The Canaanite god Baal was believed to control the land and fertility of people and animals. And so, by enacting uh, a sustained drought, the Lord proves that He, not Baal, controls rain. He, not Baal, controls life itself and everything needed for it. He alone has power over death. And in this context, we're going to see the Lord setting the stage to prove himself and turn his people's hearts back to him. That's ultimately where we're going. Um, We might have expected a message to um, Ahab specifically, as we had gotten specific messages to the kings up to this point, um, saying, you know, you need to turn or your, um, you know, your house will be, uh, will be uh, destroyed. But now the target is not necessarily the king so much as God's people, Israel. And so we can see that if we look ahead in verse 18, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter 18, Verse 37 in Elijah's prayer, um, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know, O Lord, that you are God um, and that you have turned their hearts back. Because the problem is um, not necessarily the king, but the people. Um, And look at 1821, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So that's where we're moving from this kind of indecision, wishy-washiness toward the Lord to um, God turning the people's hearts back to him. And so, but the first part of that is not public to um, the to the Israelite people. It's a private ministry. So, verses chapter 17, verses 2 through 24, um, Elijah is both the recipient and, it seems, the agent of the Lord's proving himself. And so, there are two scenes in this section. Um, first, um, he's the Lord sends in verses 2 to 7, Elijah out to an inhospitable wilderness um, as he sent the Exodus community out in the desert, and he's hiding Elijah. Um, why is the hiding necessary? We'll see in chapter 18. Um, he Elijah is a wanted man by Ahab and Jezebel. Um, they blame him for the problems of Israel, um, <clears throat> not themselves. And the Lord provides here for Elijah. We see that he provides by natural means and supernatural means. 
So um, he he goes to lives by a brook, um, like a, by a ravine, Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, seventeen uh, five. Verse 6, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So that should remind us of uh, how God provided for the Israelite community in the wilderness, um, except maybe even more, double, the Lord is more generous, um, being more more provision for Elijah, um, twice the the day, twice the kinds. Um, and then we see in verse 7, there is, a, you know, after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is not God's provision failing, but as I heard a friend note wisely about this, God's provisions for us, um, though sufficient and faithful, can sometimes in His wisdom be temporary. And perhaps He does that so that we learn to trust Him and not in trusting in the things that he provides and just assuming that they will always be there. Um, and so, after this this brook dries up, the Lord still takes care of Elijah. Um, again, he is the one who provides, and he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Verses 8 to 24, he sends Elijah out uh, to Sidon, which would have been the heart of Baal worship, um, to prove his presence and provision there. And this is the opposite where Elijah might expect to find shelter. Gods in the ancient Near East were thought to have geographic uh, locations and um, significance to be stronger in one area than um, than not, and so to send Elijah in essentially enemy territory um, is to say, well, ooh, maybe God's power is limited to just Israel, and God is showing Elijah. Um, should he be in doubt of this, and us as readers, this is preposterous. Um, Elijah is just as strong in the heart of um, Baal worship as he was in Egypt with the heart of the worship of those gods there. Um, <clears throat> and so, that's uh, the op- opposite um, in one way. And the second kind of opposite is that rather than going to a rich person or um, somebody who like has a cistern or lots of stored up grain for this, um, like Joseph did with the famine um, in Egypt, rather... Elijah is specifically sent to lodge with a person of incredible insignificance and zero resources. And so, um, verse eight, or sorry, verse nine, the Lord of the Lord came to um, Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, um, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. And so, um, we see in this that, uh, God orchestrates even the smallest circumstances. He can work through and actually grow faith in religious outsiders. Um, and we see there's there's two sections in the in the um, Sidonian widow section. Um, God's miraculous provision, uh, verses 8 through 16, where he provides a limited source of food, jar of, uh, of oil, um, stir a flour and a jug of oil, um, which don't become empty, um, even though they, they, you know, they had to go to it probably every day. It probably never filled up to abundance. It was a daily sort of sustenance that the Lord provided miraculously. We also see then in 17 through 24, um, God does something that, it, at least in the biblical record up to this point, had never been done before, um, proving his power over death. And he answers Elijah's prayer um, 
to act and do the unthinkable, to heal and raise the widow's son from the dead, which um, is a shadowy glimpse for us of what God would fully accomplish with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his um, plan of redemption, in that um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an act of history and a pinnacle of uh, of history of God's intervention and proves that God accepted Jesus Christ's payment for sin on our behalf, accepted um, him and vindicated him that he is raised from the dead, um, the true heir of David, and sits now as he ascended then bodily into heaven, he sits now reigning on the right hand of God until he will come back um, to judge uh, the peoples. So, the main idea, I think, of this chapter 17 private ministry is really in verse uh, 24 of chapter 17. And the woman, and this is after Elijah delivered the uh, the once dead, now living child to back to his mother, the Sidonian widow. Um, See, your son lives, Elijah said. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Um, what are the implications of that for you and me? God's word is trustworthy, um, and we should stake our lives on it. Why? Because he, the Lord, is trustworthy. His characters, because he is trustworthy and he cannot lie, um, his word is true. Nothing is impossible for him. And uh, the implications for this for you and me, like, like the widow, we find ourselves between two points in redemption history. On the one hand, we have heard and seen God's powerful work of redemption. We've heard the true stories about Jesus Christ's resurrection and his finished work. God has also given us evidence of his character in every day of our lives. All that we need from life, for life, spiritual and physical, comes by him. Um, and on the other hand, um, this is a not yet. So, there's now fulfillment of God's promises and his trustworthy word. Um, but also, there are many promises of the Lord that are not yet fully fulfilled. So, we're still waiting. We're still trusting. All of our problems aren't resolved. Um, there, there is still sin and pain in this world. Um, there, there are, it's my own pattern of forgetfulness. Um, and, and my heart to be inclined away toward the Lord. Maybe you relate to that. Um, and yet, this is a place where um, we get to know that the Lord is true and His Word is true, and yet we have to live it out in faith. Um, so, how has He been? How has God been giving you circumstances to help you um, recognize? that He is true and He is trustworthy, um, how has He been doing that for you, providing? Um, and how has He been giving you opportunities for continued trust? Um, what do you need to remember about the Lord as you face a current situation or crisis um, with a right perspective? Okay, so uh, we're going to go on in this section where the Lord is pursuing, He's demonstrating His power, He's calling His people to remember Him, um, and uh not turn to Baal anymore. And so, now after three years, the famine and the, there's a drought and now there's a famine. It's quite severe. 
um, especially in Samaria, verse 2 tells us. And so, um, the Lord says uh, uh, in verse 1, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And so, the, Elijah goes and we see in the next rest of the chapter, there are essentially three scenes. Um, and uh, the first scene which uh, is interesting and complex. We won't <laughs> look at it more. I wish we had time to think about it. Um, verses 3 to 19, Elijah um, meets Obadiah, who is a um, a faithful, but it seems, hidden follower of the Lord. Um, he does fear the Lord, um, and he arranges, he has Obadiah trust him and set up an arrangement um, to meet Elijah to meet with Ahab. And so, um, the second scene then, verses 20 to 40, Elijah is um, publicly confronting the Baal prophets in view of all Israel. And so, um, we see that is at Mount Carmel. This is what um, the why they've done it. Uh, we see in verse um, 18, or I'll well, read 17 and 18. So, this is Ahab's talking with Elijah. Um, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Again, he blamed Elijah for the problems um, that they were in. And he, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so, okay, so here is, in this area, Samaria, uh, this right here actually is in the middle of Israel, on, in uh, the hill country is Samaria, and up here in the, uh, toward the north on the coast is Mount Carmel. Uh, why Mount Carmel? I'm not sure. Perhaps that is because it was a high, a very high prominent peak. And that was a place, remember, we've heard this refrain throughout Kings, that uh, people were worshiping on the high places. So, perhaps that was what was going on. And um, we see then, um, Elijah proposes terms of engagement, um, those Baal prophets are gathered, the people are gathered, um, the the line is drawn in the sand for the people, and then verse 24, uh, he's, Elijah suggests to the prophets, and you call up, you know, they arrange their sacrifices on different altars, and then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And so, there is a, uh, we see then the Elijah lets the prophets of Baal essentially go first. They choose first, and um, they spend all day calling out to Baal. Um, and then, and yet, uh, verse twenty-six, uh, the end of that verse. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped all around. Um, and we see Elijah begins to taunt them. Um, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them, thinking probably that that was how they would get Baal to send rain, um, to wake up. Um, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. There was no voice. No one answered. No one pay attention. So that's what has happened with Baal. And then um, Elijah t- 
takes steps up and takes his turn. Um, Elijah says to all the people, come near me. They obey, and he repaired the altar. Um, he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So, there's an evocation of who the Lord is um, and what he has done and who his people are supposed to be. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar. And we see he made um, an offering, not just the but he poured out seed. Remember, this was a drought, and that was a big deal. And he had, um, seems, 12 jars of water poured out, um, an offering of water, but also to drench it. Um, and that uh, we see after, Israel, after Elijah's prayer, verse 36, at the time of the offering, the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O God, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And um, verse 39, I think, is the, the main idea um, that, we, the, that we should take away. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And so, um, which essentially to proclaim that is also to proclaim the... Um, the reverse of the of that about Baal, like Baal is not a god, he is nothing, and um, we see they act accordingly. Even though this is hard um, for our sensibilities to understand, um, verse forty, we see an act of obedience that they are obeying the Lord as he as he um, instructed in Deuteronomy thirteen that the false prophets should not be allowed to pollute and lead people away from the Lord. And so, um, all those prophets are uh, killed. Then we see in the last, the third section, we don't really have time to talk about, unfortunately, but um, 41 to 46, um, the Lord answers Elijah's prayers for rain. And so, uh, the principle I think that we can learn from this division is that God will give you opportunity to trust Him. God will give you opportunity to trust Him, to remember who He is, and to act on it. Um, and so, just like as the people did, so they had a line was drawn in the sand, and they had to decide what they were going to do. God forced that choice for them. And we might think, what's the big deal? Like, what does it hurt for people to um, trust in Baal or, you know, trust in a placebo? Like, it wasn't actually doing anything. Um, but God loves his people too much to let them trust and love what can never save them or help them. Um, the Lord's way with his people seems to be specifically designed to push up push us to give up patterns patterns of self-reliance and false false hopes. Um, when we remember who he is, we remember who we are called to be, those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, there is a call to action. We must reorder our priorities. We must evaluate what we're trusting in. And it is good <laughs> to know um, the Lord will give us opportunities um, to to trust Him and believe in Him. Um, 
He will expose to us where we are putting our priorities, whether it's in our reliance. Maybe it's a savings account that you have or a relationship that you have just sort of in your back pocket that like if things don't work out, um, you you can always fall back on that. Um, maybe uh, he is teaching you, like he is me, to give up self-reliance. Um, this lecture, just to be totally transparent, is not going the way I would like it to go. Um, it is not, uh, I don't, the, it doesn't f- meet my ideas of perfection, of what I would like it um, to be. And he's teaching me, God is teaching me even right now as I'm saying this, to trust that um, power comes from him. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't matter if my words are perfect or if I stumble over them that he, he will cause his word to move forward. How gracious is God to contend for our hearts in this way? Um, how patient he is to call us to remembrance and then help us uh, to take significant steps of faith to trust him. Um, true life, whole life, requires wholeheartedness toward God and um, it has not changed in the New Testament. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he calls for an exclusivity. There is no other way to be right with God. There is no other God but him. Um, and we, uh, there is also a call to radical obedience. Um, when in the New Testament, you know we are not we are not called to physical violence um the way we see enacted here in verse um chapter 18 verse 40 and yet that same passionate zeal is applied inside when uh, to us when paul says in uh the new testament to calls us to put to death all the sinful desires in you put off don't just put them to sleep don't put them um, you know, lie them off and like think about, well, maybe I can pick them back up again, um, these habits, um, but it's put in the, put them to death and have no mercy on the sinful desires that you see even in your own heart. Um, so we started thinking about um, the tension between forgetfulness and remembrance, um, the tragedy when um, something important, someone important is forgotten, um, and the joy that comes from remembrance when after forgetting we remember and our priorities are realigned, our identity is reassessed. So I wonder, um, how has God called you to himself today? How has he called you to remember him, um, even in this, uh, in our study so far? Maybe it's just even in this, um, this lesson. And what comes of this? What are the actions that he would have you take? Um, and how will you celebrate his grace and kindness in leading you toward remembrance? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work in our lives and in this world. We pray that you would continue your good purposes in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, take care.